Hi, Teddy. Hey, Nick. Do you remember the case for Christ? Oh, God. I forgot about that. Welcome to Oh, God, I Forgot About That, the podcast that explores artifacts from turn-of-the-millennium Christian culture. So, Teddy... Today, we're going to talk about Lee Strobel and the case for Christ. How does this artifact exist in your memory? Man, Nick, I am going into this episode so freaking fresh. (laughs) I remember very, very little. So this lives in my memory in this category of artifacts that was prominent when we were kids, which were I would probably in a not particularly sophisticated way categorize as the I'm going to prove this to you books (laughs) (laughs) they were those books that were like it's not enough just to have faith let's give you all the evidence for why we're right Mm -hmm. and some of it was interesting a lot of it was probably bullshit I have to be honest I kind of loved that kind of stuff as a kid but for some reason did not did not read this one or at least I was going to ask you yeah yeah no I didn't but I loved all those like why evolution is false books right so we're gonna throw all of those into a very unnuanced category of uh late 20th century apologetics okay sure okay apologetics is widespreading it certainly doesn't start with Strobel and this like crew of people uh, that he interviews and talks with, but these are a generation defining group of people, Mm. which is why I think it's important to talk about them. I did read Case for Christ. In fact, I was just looking over the list and I read three of the Case for books. Maybe you didn't know this, but there were a lot of them. No, I didn't know that. There were, in order of their publication, The Case for Christ, in 98, The Case for Faith in 2000, Case for a Creator in 2004, The Case for Easter, The Case for Christmas, The Case for the Real Jesus, The Case for Christianity Answer Book, The Case for Hope, The Case for Grace, In Defense of Jesus, oh my God. The Case for Miracles, and the newest one that came out two years ago, The Case for Heaven. And they were all sort of doing the same thing. Like they were all following the exact same formula um, that we will discuss with a case okay. for Christ. Got it. Notably, that list is not comprehensive. Uh, there were like four kids, uh, for teens, study guides, and books like that whole like cottage industry that gets made with these like pop, like nonfiction books. This guy's like as prolific as the Goosebumps author. That's what I'm picturing. Yes. I mean, that's not. Are they all all, by him, though? Are they all by him? They are all by Strobel. And that's not all the books that Strobel has written. Right, right. The Case for Christ is his fourth book on Christianity. Okay. That's the first in this series that we're going to talk about today. I ate these up. I loved them, too. I, uh, you know. I've said this before. I was a bit of a theology bro in my teenage and college years. Looking back on young Nick, I realized that what I loved about these was the air of intelligentsia that came with them. Right. This idea of expertise fueling your belief system. This idea that, uh, you know, like you said, I, I want the evidence for why I have faith. 
Uh, we're going to get to that specific formula in a minute, but <laughs> this was just a huge uh, way of life for me and a lot of people I knew. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned, you know, that I was homeschooled growing up, but also I was part of a private school for the last two years of my high school. Right. Um, I was in a graduating class of three during our senior year. We all had to do a project on our career that we wanted to have in the future. Oh, boy. My friend who consistently got better grades than I did, uh, she wanted to be an apologist, which is really interesting to me because thinking about that as a career path now seems rather absurd. Mm -hmm. Strobel made a career out of it. Mm-hmm. But he leveraged a different kind of expertise into that. And most contemporary apologists use their credentialing in a specific field to market themselves as an expert in everything. Mm-hmm. More widely known as the Jordan Peterson effect. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking that. Right. Or the Jordan Peterson move, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. Public intellectualism has just become I know everything about everything. Right. I have a couple letters after my name that say that I'm an expert in one thing that authorizes me to be an expert in everything. Right. Yeah. When it's like, just stay in your lane, man. You're good at what you do. Just stay in your lane. My basic thesis for discussing Strobel is that he sold Christians a myth about conversion and faith through evidence. And this myth has skewed apologetics for decades. Okay. I think that his books are disingenuous. They are misguided. And they are ultimately self-defeating. So those are sort of the three things I want to discuss. So we're going to talk about this book. We are going to talk about some of the rhetorical and um, logistic moves that he makes throughout this. But the larger conversation in this episode is going to be about the Strobel myth or what I'm calling the spiritual junk food myth. Sweet. I know how you feel about junk food, but (laughs) I ask that you indulge right now. You always make me out on this show to sound like such a health fanatic. I know you're not, but also just remember I that I am your friend who you most associate with pasta. That's lest true. We forget. That's true. That's true. The spiritual junk food bit. Uh, we're going to explain what all these mean. But Teddy, the role that I want you to play today is professional scholar. Not, not so much uh, that you are a literature scholar or a sociology scholar. Things like, I'm not looking for a specific kind of intelligence here, like a specific type of expertise. What I want you to do is to compare the kinds of moves that Strobel makes and the kinds of claims that he makes to the kinds of claims and moves that are expected of us as graduate students, as professional academics. I can handle that. Cool. I feel like I know where this is going, but well, yeah, I think I know where it's going. <laughs> you do. You know where this is going. This can only go one direction here. So I want to start by talking about how I think Strobel and the whole project 
of the case for whatever um, is founded on. Okay. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Lee Strobel was a journalist, a legal journalist uh, for the Chicago Tribune back in the 70s and early 80s. Hmm. Um, he covered some important stories, uh, actually was like honored a couple times by the Chicago Tribune. None of like the major journalist prize, like he didn't win a Pulitzer or anything like that, but like he was a journalist of fairly well repute. Okay. According to his own discussions of his story. So I'm following what Strobel says about himself. I'm not using other people's thing. His wife became a Christian in the late 70s. He claims to have been a, and this is his phrase, and I'm sure you've heard this before. He was a devout atheist. I hate that phrase. I hate it so much. It's so stupid. I feel like there are like three people in our culture who are devout atheists, and that's about it. And most atheists hate them. Yeah. Right. But anyway, he claims that he was a devout atheist. And then his wife got saved. And she told him, again, according to his story, she told him, well, why don't you do what you're good at and investigate the evidence and weigh it for yourself? So he did that, according to him. And he did it thoroughly. And he applied all of his journalistic skills to the test. And because of that, because of his serious consideration and weighing of the evidence, like a good journalist and legal expert, asterisk, uh, he became a Christian because the evidence was so overwhelming. They love this narrative. This is what I call the Strobel myth. They love it so much. Mm-hmm. I loved it. It's so good. It's like. Yeah, it's chef's kiss. You know, I I was once a non-believer and then I just did an independent study. And no matter what, I couldn't help but face the truth. Everything is real that I thought wasn't real. I mean, it's just so familiar. Mm -hmm. It's so familiar in part because of Strobel. Okay, it's not that this myth doesn't exist before Strobel. I can point to a very famous, very important example. C.S. Lewis. Yeah, I was just thinking, wasn't this a Lewis thing? Yeah, it's not exactly the same narrative as Lewis. Lewis's narrative is I was a I was an atheist. And then through consistent conversations with intelligent Christians, I became a Christian. And then by through further evidence, my faith was strengthened. Okay, it's a similar narrative. It's not the same. Sounds a little more believable, to be honest. Yeah. And, yeah. and to be honest, I always found uh, Lewis's narrative much more believable, much more relatable. Right. Mm-hmm. As he and Tolkien account, they had a conversation over years. Right. And basically, Tolkien said to him at one point, well, I mean, you're a scholar. You know that there are all these myths. What if they're all just pointing to Jesus? And it wasn't like uh, in one simple move, convert your friends. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that kind of thing. But it was that in conjunction with a lot of other things that led Lewis to a place of belief. It's not outside the realm of possibility that a smart person could become curious about faith and through a series of conversations and books and think, you know, thoughts arrive at Christianity. I'm not, you know, I don't yeah. think that that's an improbable, you know, an improbable thing. 
But the way these narratives are presented, it's like I was the most extreme atheist. And then I so consciously sat down and did it's so mechanical and extreme. Mm -hmm. It's just it feels unbelievable. It feels like a fantasy. It really Mm -hmm. does. Yeah. Yeah, it does feel like a fantasy because it is right. So I'm using myth, not in the colloquial use of it, which is like you know, Grecian myths and and Egyptian myths. And I'm not talking about like a pantheon stories of supernatural entities. A myth in an academic, sociological and literary sense is a variant of a true story. Right. That has taken root more than the real story. Right. And that is the thing that is believed as history. So just sort of the most common thing I can think of that is mythologized is like the settling of the West, the American West. Sure. The American dream. Yeah. The American dream. It's a myth. It's not that it's 100% untrue. No, but it is the version of it that is popularly believed is untrue. Even if it's founded in particular truths or facts. Yeah. Yeah. I would even go as far to say that with a lot of these sorts of myths, it's like where there's smoke, there's fire. Like there is probably Mm -hmm. some remnant the whole point is that there is a remnant of truth to it. It's that it's sort of transformed into something else and then has taken on a bigger life of its own. That's now replacing the original true thing. Um, yes, much, much yeah. better said than what I was going for. Absolutely. No. Yeah. 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 Um, so though so this Strobel myth, the conversion myth is that you go from this staunch atheistic perspective and then through some level of personal investigation are convinced independent of others intervention to convert to Christianity and therefore are all the stronger, all the more believable of a Christian because of it. Right. And that this is a frequent occurrence. Yes. That's, yeah. I feel like that's another feature of myth in the sense that you're talking about is that it's something that's happening all the time mm-hmm. rather than it being an interesting outlier. Right. It is it is a pattern that is regularly. Yes. Uh, that can regularly apply to people's lives. Right. And if you follow apologetic literature from the late 90s through today, all of them have some version of this myth mm-hmm. because it sells well, because it's convincing. Yeah. Um, and so that actually then feeds into the myth and makes it this self-fulfilling thing. So you read five books about apologists and all five of them are giving you some version of this myth. Yeah. It's their story. It sells so well too for in all fields, I think just the, what I would call the kind of, I changed my mind genre. It sells politically. I used to be a Democrat. Now I'm a Republican. I used to be a vegetarian, but then I realized it's killing me. Right. It's the. I changed my mind and mm-hmm. the thing I changed my mind on, it just changes everything, you know, right. um, people yeah. love it. Yeah. Yeah. It goes from, I investigated this thing and I changed my mind about this one thing. Mm-hmm. Now that one simple trick is now a panacea for anything in your life. Right. And yeah. it's my whole identity now too. <laughs> Usually yeah. that's how that goes. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> and it's like, there's so many reasons to question this myth. Mm-hmm. The, place I want to start with again with this we're in this first disingenuous section which is very much like Lewis Strobel's devout atheist claim 
is questionable. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying the guy wasn't an atheist because I wasn't in his head. I didn't know him. I wasn't alive at this time. Like I have no reason to specifically tell that he's a liar, say that he's a liar. But he grew up Lutheran, mm-hmm. right? Like he had the seeds of belief sown into being into him when he was a child. Mm-hmm. Very much like Lewis. He was brought up Protestant or, or uh, Church of England. I can't remember, but he was brought up in a Christian environment mm-hmm. and kind of stepped away from serious practicing of the faith while he got his education. So this is really a return to faith in some ways, more it's, so than a. OK, yeah, it was a return to faith for Lewis explicitly. Mm-hmm. Lewis has even said as much in some of his work. Oh, right, right, right. For Strobel, it's more I grew out of my faith and then my wife became a Christian. So, yeah, you know, he's not motivated at all to, like, change religions to what his wife. He has no specific groundings. Yeah. To, like, hang on to his. It's more beneficial at the very least. It's more beneficial for him to become a Christian and not have that tension with his spouse than it is for him to do anything else. This feels so much less impressive to me, less impressive to me than like someone who's been like an atheist their entire life and didn't grow up in the church. Like to be candid, if either me or you ended up going back to Christianity, that wouldn't be unheard of. You know, absolutely. I mean, it's so ingrained, right? I don't think Mm -hmm. it's going to happen. But that would be so much less impressive if you or I went back to Christianity than someone who grew up with like liberal atheist parents their whole life. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And that's kind of the point. I'm not trying to say he wasn't genuinely a non-believer, but that he wasn't like an atheist activist, right? Like he wasn't Hitchens (laughs) out there. That's exactly who I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah, He wasn't doing this (laughs) activism. And like actively advocating for atheism, mm-hmm. he just was somebody who didn't take his spiritual life seriously. It kind of goes back to the stuff that we've talked about before in like the health world and, and the like self-help guru stuff. It's like, here's this thing that I'm selling you. But underneath it, it's you've never actually cared about yourself. So if you just do these basic self-care techniques, it's going to make this top thing look more genuine. That's mm-hmm. really like, OK, you've never actually taken any time to form a robust personal philosophy about the world. Mm-hmm. So the second you do, you're going to kind of get sent in one direction or another if you look at only specific experts. And this leads to the second part of how it is mm-hmm. misguided. Teddy, he interviews 13 people for this book. Would you like to take a guess at how many of them are non-believers, at least? Or I will say at the very least, not Christians. One. Zero. I was trying to give them the benefit of the doubt, like maybe yeah. threw in one like Buddhist or something. Absolutely zero of the people he interviews for this book are not Christians. They are all believers. Some of them have legitimate expertise. Most of them are biblical scholars. Right. I knew that was coming. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, two, I believe, that have specific expertise outside of biblical studies. Mm -hmm. But all of them are like PhDs in New Testament studies, 
PhD in ancient Greek, specifically for New Testament studies. Like none of these people have any sort of expertise that exists outside the Christian sphere. Mm. And those two that do have credentialing outside of biblical studies or religious studies are very conservative Christian scholars in the field that don't actually hold beliefs that are in line with the rest of the profession. This is pretty highly characteristic of that prove it genre that I was talking about, right? Is that we consult there. It's under the guise of I'm going out and doing all my research, but I'm actually really consulting with my own, you know, Mm -hmm. 100%. And really, this is, I think, where the most disingenuous part of this comes in is that Strobel's not doing these interviews as an atheist trying to disprove Christianity. He didn't do any of these interviews until after he was a pastor. For almost 15 years. Right. In the documentary, there is a screenshot that is titled His Own Words from the Conclusion. If you could read that paragraph. Sure. My investigation into Jesus was similar to what you've just read, except that I primarily studied books and other historical research instead of personally interacting with scholars. I had asked questions and analyzed answers with as much of an open mind as I could muster. Now I had reached critical mass. The evidence was clear. The one remaining issue was what I would do with it. So his conclusion is formatted as this, uh, like checking the evidence against itself and deciding what action I should take there because of it. But again, according to his own claims in the book, he's not doing this research again as an atheist. He says that he did some reading, but he doesn't ever give us that list of books. I was just going to ask, is there like a bibliography attached to this? Or there is not. <laughs> okay. He does say in an interview that, you know, the books were uh, by some of the people that he interacted with for the that he re-interviewed. But by and large, there's nothing to um, suggest that the these books were robust and of many positions Mm -hmm. if he really wanted to actually show both sides because that's kind of he plays this both sides thing Mm -hmm. we were just talking about uh bill maher and joe rogan playing this both sides thing and how you know they've got these they 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 have these like extreme crazy people from all over the place on all over the spectrum and it's not exactly a great thing to do but it's arguably better than saying you play both sides and only including one side right he likes to fashion this book and present it as a prosecutor and defense right he uses a lot of like legal language and he uses a lot of like um journalistic language of like weighing Mm -hmm. evidence and presenting a courtroom but really now one of the one of the youtubers that i watched that reviewed the book said it best it's not a prosecutor interrogating a witness in cross-examination. This is a defense lawyer questioning his own witness. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That's a good, I like that. So that's sort of the, the foundational way that this is disingenuous. The last kind of disingenuous space, the last claim about his disingenuity, we'll pretend that's a real word, 
Okay. Is this weird evidence and faith thing. Mm. You said it. And I agree with you because I was like that too. I loved the idea of, yeah, you have faith, but you have it because of evidence. Except, <laughs> definitionally, when you have evidence, right. you do not have faith. Faith is the belief without evidence. And providing evidence undercuts the very premise of faith. Am I wrong in, in that logical conundrum? I think that's true. I'm trying to think back to how this was presented to us in the church. And there was definitely a sense of, yes, either you have faith and the faith is, you know, um, must exist regardless of whether or not we have proof. But as Christians, we also need to be sort of armed with there was this. it was like a dual sort of perspective. Like we also need to be armed with evidence. We need to be armed with some facts. We need to basically make sure that we're able to speak up for the fact that there is credibility to our faith, that our faith is justified. So I guess that's what I think that was the language that was at least given to me as a kid was that, yes, you know, I have faith, but I have a reason for that faith. I have Absolutely. a case. I have a case. <laughs> I have a case. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Very much like uh, the weird myth that like everyone's always going to be watching you and judging what you do and if somebody's going to ask you about your cross necklace the apologetics has their own the crew has their own version of that and that is someday someone is going to tell you that you're stupid for believing in jesus and they're going to present you with this evidence that they think you know disproves jesus mm -hmm. and you're going to have to stand up for it right by presenting evidence back which also never really happens. Never. If you agree to a debate with like a famous atheist, they're probably going to ask you, like, tell me why, you know, what evidence do you have for God? Mm -hmm. But they also presented this as a discourse that was just happening all yeah. around every day. I don't know if anyone when I was a Christian ever asked me to provide proof of my faith. Nope. The only people I talked to with about this evidence. No, too many problems prepositions <laughs> the only person people i ever talked to about these like pieces of evidence were fellow christians in right. apologetic settings were casual settings i never talked to anybody who was a non-believer or an avowed atheist or whatever like these didn't come up no one was there attacking me with like the archaeological record saying mm -hmm. prove prove like it didn't happen yeah closest it maybe came in that era was i felt like the debate about creationism versus evolution was sure. much more on the surface than it is mm -hmm. now i don't know if we've just all just accepted the fact that like you know i don't know if we've all just become a bit more rational or what happened there but i do remember that debate being kind of big and maybe having some conversations with some of the kids at my school about that. But this whole, like, did Jesus Christ really exist? Prove it, you know? Yeah. This doesn't happen that much. Yeah, absolutely. But I think you're right that it's more for the edification of, of Christians themselves. Yes. And that's, and that's sort of where I want to land this part of the discussion is this isn't a book to convince people. This is not a book that is going to convince atheists to all of a sudden become Christians. This book isn't written for the audience that the myth is about. 
it's for the right. people who believe the myth, mm-hmm. right? This isn't for the people doing their own research to become Christian. This is for the people who are Christians to keep believing in the facts are on your side. There's an mm-hmm. inevitability attached to your belief. Right. If people really seriously searched, then they'd be Christians. We've talked about the spectrum of harm. I don't want to make a conclusion about this yet, but I really want to take a moment to stake out that this is where I believe a large portion of the harm comes from, mm. which is this inevitability. And here's why I think it's harmful. It's not so much harmful to the average atheist, to the average non-believer. No. I actually think that this inevitability of the evidence, right, that that if you seriously considered the evidence, you would inevitably become a Christian. I actually think that it's part of what has led to all the conspiracy theories. It is what has part of what has led to all of this problem with our like public discourse. Because if you believe that the evidence for what you already believe mm-hmm. is so strong that anybody who really actually, whatever the hell that means, looked at the evidence would agree with you, then you have foundational grounds to dismiss anyone who disagrees with you because they didn't seriously consider the evidence. Mm. It's the, well, you know, all the biologists who believe in evolution didn't seriously consider the evidence for a creator or else they would agree with me. So you can't take them seriously about anything. Right. It's, well, listen, we know this works. So if you don't agree with me, you haven't seriously considered the evidence. Meta level of it. Once you say that about something, it lets people discredit you as well. Mm hmm. So now you have this weird space where anyone can claim that, even people who it's accurate about, Mm. right? Like we have the facts about gun violence. We have the statistics about abortion and contraceptives and sex education. We have the we have concrete evidence about so many things that we can say, hey, look, if you just looked at it, you'd understand what we're talking about in a kind of reasonable way. And then you have the. Well, if you actually looked at it, you would agree with right without any actual basis. Right. And it puts us in a really troublesome spot, a really troublesome relationship to evidence. Yeah. It's like that track from evidence to you agree with me versus evidence leads to more evidence, hopefully, which leads to more questions, which leads to further conversation. You know, it's it's, those two. Those are very different tracks. Yes. and the. The scientific method, the like proper way to research is to do research, whether that's like actual like experimentation and study or if it's looking through documents, whichever level of research you're talking about requires you to look at something, evaluate it, have that inspire a new question that you then dig deeper on. Mm-hmm. And that sequential questioning should lead you to a robust understanding of something. That can't be crumpled into a soundbite effectively. Right. And not to mention that quality scientific research is also just as much about reporting when you're wrong about your hypothesis as it is about proving that you're right. That is also valuable research to be like, we tested to see if this supplement did X, Y and Z. We wanted it to. It didn't. Yes. 
Thank you. <laughs> no one knows what the fuck a method section is. Jeez. <laughs> right? Like these conclusions, the negative conclusions, right? We would call something like that. The the like this didn't work. The bummer conclusions. The bummer conclusions. <laughs> yeah. Do you know how many times I have sat down to say, this is what I thought about this text? And right. my professor went, I think you're totally off base. the second thing I want to talk about today with this book, it's misguided and it's misguided in two major ways. One in its intention and two in its research. Okay. Research is where I want to start. Okay. There's a lot of bullshit in here. The most perhaps egregious example, most like notable example of the bullshit evidence that he pulls up is when he references Jerry Vardaman. Now, Strobel himself doesn't talk about Vardaman in this context. He's interviewing another person, an archaeologist, not an archaeologist, a biblical historian, uh, <laughs> who references Jerry Vardaman, right? So this person he's talking to references Jerry Vardaman. The question that Strobel is asking, McRae is the person he's interviewing, is about the specific timing of Jesus's birth because the records of the census timing and the like ruling of Herod and all of that mm -hmm. that the Bible claims don't actually line up with the archaeological evidence. Got it. And there's a specific reference to a like more regional leader that doesn't match up. Okay. okay. So when Strobel brings up this case, or Strobel says of McRae, McGray knew I was raising an issue that archaeologists have wrestled with for years. He responded by saying, quote, an eminent archaeologist named Jerry Vardaman has done a great deal of work in this regard. He has found a coin with the name of Quirinius on it in very small writing or what we call micrographic letters. This places him as proconsul of Syria and Silica from 11 BC until after the death of Herod. Basically, the claim that gets made here by McRae and a lot of people who quote Jerry Vardaman is that these micrographic letters show that there's another person with the same name as the person that's named in the Bible oh. that has a ruling that lines up and helps things fit together better. Got it. There are two main problems with referencing Jerry Vardaman's work. The first is micrographic letters are letters that are not visible to the naked eye being inscribed in coins from the first century. Okay. So do you know of a tool that can make coherent microscopic letters from that time? No. Yeah, that's because we have no archaeological evidence that says there is <laughs> one of those that exists. I'm like, this is a trick question. <laughs> it is not. You'd like to, he, Strobel would like to think it's a trick question. But that doesn't exist. Right. The second problem is that the entire archaeological field knows this. Hmm. Knows that there isn't evidence. There is no unearthed example of an, a tool that can do this sort of work that we know about. So when Vardaman makes this claim, he does not do so in a peer-reviewed setting. Ever. Vardaman never makes these claims in a peer-reviewed setting. 
And all the experts in the field that had anything to say did so of their own volition after mm-hmm. looking this up and interacting with Christian apologists who keep bringing this up. Right. Nobody cares about what Vardaman has to say because <laughs> he has never produced evidence that these things exist. Like no one has ever seen the coins he's talking about. And there has never been evidence of a tool that could do this. Mm-hmm. And most experts in the field have successfully said this, that, that have addressed this have said this is just bunk. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Now, returning just for a moment to the disingenuous nature of this book, you'd think that when this was thoroughly discredited after Strobel wrote the published the book, right? So it was already pretty much bunk before Strobel published the book. But there was a large like reaction to and claim that this was ridiculous after the fact. Strobel was asked directly Hey, you know, you referenced Jerry Vardaman. He's not a credible source. This is not a thing. It might be a throwaway piece of your argument, but it's ridiculous. Do you disavow it? He not only didn't disavow it in the <laughs> moment, he said, well, you know, we don't even there's no evidence to say this couldn't happen. That's hmm. well, what I like to call the Airbud rule. There's no rule that says a dog can't play <laughs> basketball. There's no evidence that says this didn't happen. Right. And he kept in and further publications of the book, except he added a line in further publications that said, I was a little dubious of this, but I let it go. The power of a footnote, man. Seriously. Look, we can go at length and discuss all of the terrible kinds of proof. For example, uh, the first chapter is eyewitness reports of Jesus. Did you know that 500 people? witnessed jesus after his resurrection no no i didn't know that mm-hmm. right uh they were trust me you know how we know that how oh. <laughs> the bible says so oh okay yeah paul says there were 500 people that saw jesus there isn't further archaeological evidence that corroborates those 500 witnesses it's just well we have really old manuscripts of paul saying there was 500 people We don't have 500 individual sources. We have one person saying that there were 500 eyewitnesses. So in a book where he's trying to prove that the Bible is true, he's using the Bible to prove that things are true. You have just beautifully summarized (laughs) 90% of the evidence that Strobel claims. He does not cite extra biblical sources, ancient extra biblical sources, except for Josephus and Tertullian and a couple other church fathers that archaeologists know were written after the Bible. So they're referencing the Bible. Mm. We don't actually have archaeological stuff that was written during Jesus's time. In fact, the entire Bible was written after eyewitnesses would have been dead. Most of it. Right. Right. And even still, it's somebody interviewing somebody who said something. It's double hearsay at best mm-hmm. you'd think as a law reporter strobel would know that yeah most of his claims are unfalsifiable they're they're not able to be really truly tested but wasn't that, wasn't that the uh the college boys like primary gotcha in god is not dead was basically yeah. like but you can't disprove him yep And this guy with a Ph.D. in philosophy just like falls at his feet and is like, you're absolutely right. You've got me. Yep, exactly. Kind of that's kind of a similar 
that feels similar to that. People love this. Mm-hmm. And that's the like crux of this piece is the disproving myth, not myth, but like the use of the pro- of the problematic phrase disprove. Mm-hmm. Right. Because a lot of apologetics rests on the inability to disprove a thing. Right. It's not that I'm supplying novel evidence outside of what I have deemed uh, inerrant divine word. It's that there's a bunch of stuff that points in a direction and you don't have a specific explanation that is backed by further evidence. Therefore, you can't tell me I'm wrong. Right. He says in the conclusion, it's clear that this evidence says that there is a God. It's like, okay, it's only clear if you accept one subset of explanations. Mm -hmm. If you ignore all the other ones. You know, there was I was I was watching another video about like arguments in favor of Jesus and and an atheist responding to those just to sort of see what the tone because I've been out of the apologetics world for a while. Yeah. Like just to see what the world still looks like. And it's still guys making the same kinds of things. Well, you know, listen, if we look at the Big Bang, we have to accept one of these things that there was a creator who started this all that. I forget what one of the other ones was. And he's like, this would take a great leap of faith to believe this. So the only logical thing is to believe that an omniscient, omnipotent being intentionally created. Okay, But hang on. You just ignored the leap of faith that it takes for your thing and said, yeah, okay, we don't have the evidence. So most reasonable people, reasonable experts in the field say, hey, we don't know. Like you said, we tested this. And it didn't give us any conclusions, except that this isn't it. Right. Another one of his explanations is uh, that there are so many copies of the Gospels, ancient copies. That's why we know them to be true, because if you stacked up all the copies that we I'm not even kidding, he makes this argument. If you stack up all the copies of the Bible, it's like a thousand times the size of all the copies that we have of the Odyssey and the Iliad. Why does this matter? No fucking clue. That it's just been that because so many people have also written it down, it speaks Basically, to some sort of inherent truthfulness. There's this cross section of quantity and earliness, like closeness to when Jesus said something. Um, it's uh, the like early equals true and quantity equals veracity style of thing right like you know since there were so many this was repeated so much Mm. so close to when jesus was around somebody that knew the truth would have corrected them but one that's not how oral traditions work that's not how anything works right again we've got a bunch of people who like claim to levitate in the past hundred or fifty years that nobody ever actively disproved So like, you know, all those flyers that said the amazing so-and-so makes themselves levitate. Well, we have thousands of those flyers, so it means he must have. Well, you know, if you stacked up all the copies of Harry Potter that have ever been sold, (laughs) it pretty much outranks the Bible. That's a lot of pages. Just as true as the Bible is. A lot of pages, Nick. There's a lot of pages of Harry Potter. Yeah, I, I like. It's just this absolute ridiculous 
like quantity equals veracity. It's also one of those examples of a time where Christians just can't let things sometimes just not mean anything. I don't know how to describe this, but it would there was definitely this air when I was a kid in these conversations of like nothing's a coincidence or like nothing's meaningless. To some degree, you know, I'm someone who breathes way too much meaning into everything for sure. So in some ways, you know, here's my hypocrisy showing. But also sometimes there are just things that just are weird and exist and not everything like points us back to some sort of inherent universal truth. But rather than use those things as just like neutral or just to make them neutral observations or I mean, God forbid, use them as like against your faith, but even just neutral. It was like we weren't satisfied with that. Like it had to be we had to assign some sort of like divine importance to relatively neutral phenomenon. Wonderfully said. Yes, uh, absolutely. There's this. I, I like to say this when I talk to students about like, you know, I get those survey students who are like, well, why should I care about literature? It's not worth talking to them most of the time. But right. <laughs> the things that I say in class are something like humans are story creatures, mm-hmm. part of our sentience, part of the baggage of our consciousness is that we want things to mean something. So when something happens that we don't understand, we create a story, we create mm-hmm. a narrative into which that thing we can't understand fits. And that makes life easier to deal with. There's nothing inherently malicious or noble about that. It just happens. Right. And true intellectuals, I hate the word true, but authentic intellectuals doing good work are also curious and skeptical of that fact. Yes. Are aware of the fact that we assign meaning in places where meaning isn't warranted or we over assign meaning. We should lead with that curiosity of like, does this actually hold up rather than it's meaningful? There it is. There it is. There it is. Yes. A hundred and ten percent. because. What we find, and this is like my next point, is you're kind of asking things that nobody cares about. (laughs) Like no atheist is actually an atheist because there's an archaeological discrepancy in the Bible. No, like nobody's sitting there going, well, you know, the reason I'm an atheist is because, you know, Nazareth doesn't we don't have an archaeological record for Nazareth. The historicity isn't necessarily the thing that's being contested here. Mm -hmm. Why do you as Christians care so much about the historicity? Now, I get it. There is some layer to this. that's like, oh, if we can prove that it's true on one level, we can prove it's true on the other. But I want to say something very strongly that young Nick would not have understood. And that is historicity does not equal divinity. Right. Even if you could prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus, the person existed, that does not prove that he is the son of God. Right. Because that's not something you can prove. Mm-hmm. That's not something that can be logically proven. So why are you spending all of this time trying to convince me of it? Plus, most atheists don't even believe the entire Bible is fictional. You know, like most most atheists would there might be many, many atheists out there who are like, yeah, there was a Jesus of Nazareth, some guy named Jesus of Nazareth. Or the Bible reflects some sorts of truths of things that really did happen or, you know, people who did actually live. I don't think that that's like 
atheist main concern. The thing that triggers most people's deconstruction, a lot of things that triggered my deconstruction weren't, oh, here are these archaeological or historical discrepancies. I don't know if Jesus was a real person. It's I don't know that you can say I don't think you can. I don't believe you can say that the Bible is inerrant divine word of God, that Jesus was specifically the son of the God that specifically wants to send us to hell for not believing that he was the thing he said he was. Right, right. Like there's all of these unprovable claims that are made. Mm-hmm. You're sitting here. He literally devotes a chapter to Jesus actually died on the cross because medical professionals say that that would have killed him. But no one's saying that crucifixion wasn't a real method of I don't. Yeah. I see where they're coming from only in the sense that I remember when I first had the realization that a part of the Bible not be what may not be true. Mm-hmm. It really does throw you into like a mind fuck, you know, yeah. because and my one I had a friend at the time in college say it reminded her of like you're on a run and you like kind of trip into a little hole. Right. Yeah. And that first hole is the Bible might not be real or true in the sense Mm-hmm. But the minute you hit that hole, all of a sudden more and more holes start popping up right. and eventually you can't even run anymore. Yeah. So I can see why they guard, you know, the truthfulness of the text so fiercely. On one hand, I do understand that, but I just also don't think that that's the direct track to people's disbelief. Yes, it's um, Rachel Held Evans always called it the slippery slope. That mm-hmm. once you start asking questions, you're going to inevitably ask more questions. But the response to that, the intellectually authentic and the intellectually honest response to those questions is not trying to quell them with answers and backfill with this nonsense. It's to say kind of authentically, hey, we're talking about faith here. We don't need this to be historically accurate. We believe in something bigger than historical accuracy. Right or different than historical accuracy. The amount of ink spilled on these pa- on these pages and so many pages since trying to sit and prove this bit like I remember books being entire books being written about like medical forensics being applied yeah. to the crucifixion. Right, right. Or like the flood or Jonah. <laughs> like I I remember an entire study in one of my homeschooling curriculums that was like trying to argue that Jonah really could be swallowed by a whale because the throat of a whale is X, Y, and Z long. And it's actually possible that a human could live in the throat of a whale. And maybe the Bible, when they said stomach, what they really meant was the back of the throat. And it's like, oh my God. It felt really good at the time though. Yeah. Oh, it felt great. Yeah. Great. Because it was these, this, this formula that, uh, fills in those little things that causes us a trip. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I there's a pothole here and somebody comes and dumps a bunch of sand in it. OK, it feels better. The yeah, it doesn't go away, though. Right. There's a great line where in the book where he goes, Jesus not dying during the crucifixion is at odds with modern medical knowledge. So he definitely died. OK, but you know what else was at odds with modern medical knowledge? That he rose, that he came back to life. Feels like that's a much bigger improbability than someone dying because they're nailed to a piece of wood. (laughs) Like 
in order to get to, I would, I only want to do this once because it's boring and uninteresting, but I think it needs to be said. The number of mental steps you need to get to, to the phrase, him not dying during the crucifixion is at odds with modern medical knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that actually being a meaningful thing is incredible. You can't, through medical phenomenon, explain rising from the dead miraculously if you spend all that time saying it definitely killed him. Right? You prove that he's definitely dead. Great. That doesn't prove that he definitely rose. And if you want to explain that there's a way that he could have risen medically, then you're explaining away the divinity. None of these ways lead to actual divinity. You had a light bulb come on. I'm talking. Oh, in circles I here. did. You know, you know my face well. <laughs> OK, I think I understand now. So the whole the whole emphasis on the he really died thing is to solidify the fact that he was, in fact, dead and not already alive, which could discredit the resurrection story. Right. Yeah. Oh, OK, I understand. Because I was like, how could anyone argue that someone who's crucified doesn't actually die? Right. But I see that detail is important because he wants to justify resurrection. Mm-hmm. But that yeah. doesn't justify resurrection. It just justifies he's dead. Right. Right. Exactly. Again, all of these arguments don't lead to the divinity and resurrection of Christ, the son of God. Right. Which is like the most important detail. <laughs> right. You're missing the thing. Right. And and that's where this is. It's most uh, misguided. I want to sort of wrap up here with this last point. And that is, I think this is ultimately a self-defeating formula. Aside from all the things we've talked about, uh, where he's missing this divinity argument, um, there are so many tropes, so many apologetic tropes that are dragged out through this entire thing. Uh, Two of them that I want to talk about. Um, The first is he invokes C.S. Lewis's classic trichotomy. Do you know that the trichotomy is? I don't think so. It sounds familiar, but I couldn't tell you what it is. Yeah. Uh, let me pull up the quote here so that you can see it. This is how Strobel closes the book. This is a, a quote slash paraphrase from C.S. Lewis, and he's building off of Lewis's classic trilemma. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him the Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That is like memory unlock. I have I've read this before. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. the classic trilemma that uh, Lewis is sort of the first one to invoke it. But um, right. it's the lunatic liar Lord thing. Yeah. You have to accept Jesus as one of those three things. 
but that's not true. <laughs> right. Let's do a nice, generous reading. I can think of a good reading that's not one of those three things. He was a political activist. Mm -hmm. The son of God was a title for Caesar. Mm -hmm. The gospel was a word that we use. This is, you know, all the stuff from uh, Bell that we talked about, right? Like there's a really interesting read of Jesus not actually believing the things he's saying, but being a political activist, but activating the Jewish resistance against the empire. Right. Was actually a rabble rouser and a revolutionary. Like that's a good reading that doesn't necessitate him being divine, him being crazy, or him being an outright liar. Mm-hmm. Like that false dichotomy, that false trichotomy sets up for very problematic and disingenuous argumentation. Yeah. Once you force someone to agree with that false thing, you've undermined the entire basis of your argument. I've looked at the uh, evidence objectively, says Strobel, who then doesn't look at all the evidence, is highly motivated mm-hmm. and responds to it with false uh, trichotomies or dichotomies. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's no state of this that is following along with the actual myth. I want you to read uh, two th- two last little things in our document there's a paragraph that says lee's claims about himself okay so this is strobel talking about himself yes and there was plenty of wrongdoing i'll spare myself the embarrassment of going into details but the truth is that i had been living a profane drunken self-absorbed and immoral lifestyle in my career i had backstabbed my colleagues to gain a personal advantage and had routinely routinely violated legal and ethical standards in pursuit of stories In my personal life, I was sacrificing my wife and children on the altar of success. I was a liar, a cheater, and a deceiver. What's that song, right? Um, (laughs) I'm a smoker. I'm a joker. That's what I hear in that song. Uh, Exactly. I don't care about most of that. That's just tradition, like typical Christian, total depravity, self-deprecating kind of stuff. I was so awful, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But that middle sentence. In my yeah. career, I backstabbed my colleagues to gain professional advantage. Violated and- legal and ethical standards in pursuit of stories. This is not reassuring, man. That's not reassuring at all. You just told me you were an unethical, bad reporter. That That's the foundational. And all of a sudden, I'm supposed to think that you did this well, that you held to ethical. No, sorry, Lee. You just disqualified yourself. I'll spare myself the embarrassment. Going tell, I won't tell you how, but he doesn't even really spare us how. And this is where I want to land this whole thing. I told you he frames this as like a law reporter doing the hard evidence work, right? Sure. So in his introduction, he gives us a story about a case of his. Actually, a rather famous fuck up for Lee Strobel. Oh, we're going to come back to that in a second. But he opens each chapter with little like anecdotes about being a courtroom reporter and what it looks like and doing all that kind of thing. Some of it's actually the most compelling stuff in the book. Okay. Because it's just interestingly written and, you know, courtroom dramas always have that sort of allure. But in the introduction, he tells this story about a cop who was shot by someone who was a criminal, right? The cop was trying to apprehend this person. And then according to the original story of the events, 
this person, uh, Dixon is their last name, his last name. He shot the cop. Mm. Lee, before it went to trial, interviewed Dixon and the cop and did research and stuff and wrote up this long piece about how terrible Dixon was for shooting the cop. And like he was definitely guilty. And, and Strobel looked at the evidence and said that Dixon was guilty. Do you want to take a guess at what actually happened? I don't, I don't do I even want to know? <laughs> well, Dixon mm. was going to be apprehended by this cop and the cop started wrestling him to the ground. The cop was carrying a pen gun, which is what it sounds like. It is a right. pen shaped barrel that shoots a single 22 caliber bullet. He had it in his pocket and it went off. Mm. The cop literally shot himself while wrestling someone to the ground and Dixon went to jail for it. Wow. Because he took a plea bargain. They had him in interrogation for hours. Uh, don't even have the time to begin talking about unethical interrogation techniques and all that kind of thing. Definitely look into that shit. He basically took a plea bargain because they said your life is going to be ruined if you don't admit that you did this. And so Dixon admitted to get a bargain. Mm. Strobel had to print a front page retraction to his terrible story because oh, wow. the judges thought that it influenced the jury to believe these things that weren't true. Oh, okay. it's like a major journalistic and ethical fuck up. Here's what Strobel says in The Case for Christ. Finally, I put the crucial question to Dixon. If you were innocent, why in the world did you plead guilty? Dixon sighed. It was a plea bargain, he said, referencing to the practice in which prosecutors recommend a reduced sentence if a defendant pleads guilty and thus saves everybody the time and the expense of a trial. They said if I pleaded guilty, they would sentence me to one year in prison. I'd already spent 362 days in jail waiting for my trial. All I had to do was admit I did it and I'd go home in a few days. But if I insisted on a trial and the jury found me guilty, well, they'd throw the book at me. They'd give me 20 years for shooting a cop. It wasn't worth the gamble. I wanted to go home. And so I said, you admitted doing something that you didn't do. Dixon nodded. That's right. Here's why I think this is so damning. Aside from the fact that it points out a lot of the problems with Lee as a reporter. Right. Much of the first two thirds of this book are about eyewitness accounts and corroborating evidence with people. Uh, if you're familiar with this, a lot of what Lee interacts with is the die for a lie thing, which is oh. the die for a lie argument is basically like, oh, well, it had to be true. Christ's resurrection had to be true or else none of his followers would have allowed themselves to be put to death for something they knew was untrue. Right. No one would ever give up their life. For no a one would ever admit to something they knew wasn't true. Because there's no motivation that would ever make you want to admit to something that isn't true. Right after we get this admission from Dixon about here's a logical reason why someone would admit to and claim to their own detriment why something that's true that isn't true. Yeah, it also negates the fact that people believe things that aren't true and they believe them fervently. <laughs> like, people die for a lie all the fucking time. All the time! Just because you believe it's true and you're willing to die for it doesn't speak to its truthfulness. It speaks to your commitment to the idea. Again, according to this, it like, oh, they died for it. Therefore, it must be true. Just like we did the whole, oh, there's lots of copies of Harry Potter. That's true. Well, then the Quran must be true and Islam must be true. 
Right. That's a horrible argument if you're trying to like kind of raise one religion over others. Yes. All of the people that died for other religions, all of the people that died for political causes and revolutions that were bad. You've just given a lot of credibility to suicide bombers. Yes, exactly. (laughs) In in like even without all of that, which I think is necessary to bring in here, like you just did. Even without all that, we have just this very compelling story about Dixon, which is a narrative in which something happened. Eyewitnesses said it did. Multiple eyewitnesses said it did. Multiple reports said it happened, including our author. Right. The evidence was analyzed by multiple people. All untrue. Right. We even have a die for a lie surrogate in Dixon himself. Mm. Who admitted to culpability and guilt. When he did not have it. And yet, Strobel holds this up as a paragon example of how if you just check the evidence for yourself and re-examine, you will inevitably become a Christian. There's a, a, a moment where somebody says in the book, it's amazing what people will do to disprove Jesus's uh, mission, resurrection. Yeah, it's really amazing the kinds of backflips you guys will do, too. <laughs> I think that actually raises the good point that some of our reactions and observations here, I think, could come across a little nitpicky. Mm -hmm. But lest we forget, this is in response to someone saying, I have a logical, factual case for the biblical narrative. So once you open up that, you know, (laughs) once you open up that box, this is the kind of response that you're going to get and you should get. It reminds me a lot of, and this is a more contemporary apologetic thing, so it might not be something you're familiar with, but have you ever heard of Ray Comfort? I have no idea what that is. It's a man. His name is Ray Comfort. (laughs) Okay. No, I have no idea. He's actually a friend of Kirk Cameron. Okay. Oh, okay. He was an Australian pastor and he kind of became a big like apologist and he has a lot of like, he, he likes to think that he has a lot of credence with atheists. He has this whole video that he put out about a banana and how it's God's perfect food that he made because it has perforations where you can open it. It comes in its own container and it has a handle that you can hold on to. And it's contemporary bananas have been biologically engineered, right? That's not how they appear in nature. And, and, and he, and look, it sounds like it's a silly thing to focus on, but I just ate bananas. I didn't need them to be a source of divine knowledge Nobody cared about that. But now you're going to bring it up and you're going to put it out there and say, look, this is the perfect example. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it's not. And I'm only in, interested in telling you it's not because you so cared. I, like the, all of this evidence, all of this apologetic mindset is answering a lot of stuff that most people don't care about. Right. And I don't want to speak for everybody. I'm, I, you know, I don't want to get all the messages that are like, no, this matters a lot. OK, fine. It's okay if it matters to you. That's great. You do you. But the point I'm trying to make is the main thing that atheists and people who have deconstructed folks in the evangelical community, the things that they are concerned about are not necessarily the historical veracity of the Christ narrative, but that the Christ narrative is in fact divine, infallible, and correlates to the specific picture of God. Mm-hmm. that Protestant Christianity claims. Yes. Yep. Those are not provable things. 
Yep. When you talk to atheists, it's usually something along the lines of, I'm just not seeing evidence for the fact that this is the word of God. I'm just not seeing evidence for the fact that we have a loving and just God. I don't understand the suffering question. It's very rare that you hear a, you know, the uh, biblical timeline seems a little off and that, uh, I mean, (laughs) in some ways, it's such an optimistic Mm -hmm. perspective that this is the, like these sorts of like little knowledge bits, right. Mm -hmm. Are what are holding people back Mm -hmm. from a complete Christian worldview. Absolutely. And it, it entirely shifts the like burden of proof as well. This goes back to that harm question that we talked about, right? Like it shifts it from the person who doesn't believe in something or shifts the burden of proof from the person who does believe to the person who doesn't. Yeah. I just say, I don't think there's enough evidence. Well, the apologetic move is, well, you need to prove that there's no evidence or prove that this didn't. You can't prove a negative. Right. You can't. The burden of proof isn't on me to say that there is not an assassin behind you. It's for you to prove that there is. Right. It's just your cat. They're assassins in their own rights. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean? Like, I, like, I don't believe uh, it's a it's a silly example, but like, yeah, I don't believe in pink elephants. Well, you have to prove that pink elephants don't exist. I can't do that. Ha. So you're wrong. Right. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm saying there is not a thing there. You have to prove there is a thing there. Right. These little factoids and tidbits are all about spinning and deflecting away from the real question. Mm-hmm. They're not proving anything. Sure. If you want to say there's a historical Jesus, fine. There's there's archaeologists, archaeologists who believe that, who agree with that. Sure. That doesn't make him divine. Do you think there are any versions of like an eighth? Like, do you think there's any like atheist version of this book that does like back, like does the thing back, like writes a book where they're like, I was a Christian, but then I encountered all these factoids and now I'm an atheist. I wouldn't be surprised. But here's my hypothesis without seriously investigating that specific question. Yeah. I don't think those exist on in an unprompted way. Let me say what I mean. Uh, one of the things and I'll link this in our in our description. But one of the things that I looked at was the case against the case for Christ. Hmm. It's a book that follows along chapter by chapter doing this sort of debunking like point by point. I saw so many of those. Yeah. And there are so many books that are like in response to like, right. I think there's a uh, what's the book? I forget what it is, but there was that one Heavens for Real that came out oh, a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a book that's like Heaven's Not for Real or Heaven is for Fake. I can't remember what it was called, but like mm-hmm. these books exist as they are prompted by. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. see a lot of these books that are like, here are the five reasons you need to be an atheist. Aside from your like Hitchens, Dawkins, the three people, the four horsemen, right? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't see too much of that, right? I see a lot of stuff that's written in response to, and even those, like the God delusion, is written in response to a lot of things. Yeah, I don't see these things. Like the Christian versions of these are apropos of nothing. Did you know? That it's weird that they chose women to be the ones that first claimed about this. That proves that it must be true. Yeah. Like nobody, nobody. Okay. My second question is, do you see, how do you see um, the case for Christ and the subsequent many books as fitting within contradicting, reflecting our era? Oh, yeah. I think they're definitional. 
in a lot yeah. of ways to our era, right? Yeah. Like, um, in a lot of ways, this does for apologetics and Christian Christian intellectualism what uh, Jesus Freak did for like teen culture, mm. right? Like, there's this shift towards postmodernity, right? in sort of the culture at large and i think this is a way to try to like pull us back to modern modernity right mm-hmm. what i mean by that is like post-modernity is hey listen you know things are relative we can't really prove a lot of things we have to accept what we can't prove and we have to recognize that everybody experiences the world differently and then the christian clamor is nope we can prove everything we can prove <laughs> right nope, we can prove every last little thing every jot and tittle it's perfect we can prove it Mm-hmm. you see jesus freak it's like okay well you know kids are dying there's this violent thing that's happening you know okay cool you guys all need to be ready to die for jesus that's not what we were talking about that's not that's that's not the correct response to this cultural thing that's happening just like right. this isn't the correct response to the cultural thing that's happening yeah, in that yeah. way yeah okay. well thank you all so much for uh spending time with us today and discussing uh, the case for Christ on our lovely little show here. Uh, If you enjoyed this episode and don't want to miss future conversations, please follow us so you get notifications. If you would like, you can interact with us between episodes on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, mostly Instagram. Make sure to reach out for us and chat with us in those places. We'd love to hear how the case for Christ uh, mattered to you or didn't matter to you or influenced you today. And if there's anything that we would miss, we'd love to hear about that. One last thing, rate us. We'd be so grateful. It helps keep us visible and ensure that others hear about us. Thanks for joining us on our journey of remembering. Talk to you soon.